You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by RailSprout Media. For more information and to access hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a lecture by Professor Peter Fritchie, Trowbridge Professor of History at the University of Illinois. The lecture, Truth and History, was given in the Humanities Institute on the 30th of May 2018 as part of Truth to be Told, Understanding Truth in the Age of Post-Truth Politics. Truth to be Told is a UCD Humanities Institute public lecture series in response to the emergence of what is called a post-factual world. For more information on Truth to be Told, please check out the series page on the UCD Humanities Institute's website. Peter Fritchie was introduced by Professor Anna Fuchs, Director of the UCD Humanities Institute. I'd like to welcome you all to our fifth Truth To Be Told lecture. Those of you who have followed the series know that uh, it's a UCD Humanities public lecture series in response to the emergence of what is called a post-factual world in which trustworthy models of discursive truth have been derided as old-fashioned, elitist and authoritarian We've had quite a, a nice lineup of, of uh, speakers, ranging from Supreme Court justice to an active politician to an expert in memory studies uh, and in English literature. And now I'm really delighted that we are concluding uh, the series before the summer um, with Peter Fritchie who is the uh, Trowbridge Professor of History at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where he has been teaching since 1987. Uh, He is, without any doubt, one of the most prolific and intellectually astute historians of European and, in particular, German history in the 20th century, Uh, and especially of National Socialism, on which he has written quite a number of books, including Why So Few Resisted Hitler, The Iron Wind, which appeared with basic books in 2016, The Turbulent World of Franz Goel, An Ordinary Berliner Writes the 20th Century, Harvard 2011, Life and Death in the Third Reich, which appeared again with Harvard in 2008, Germans into Nazis, uh, again with Harvard in 1998. Even though he continues to remain preoccupied uh, with the origins and consequences of the Nazi period, he has published much more widely on German and European cultural history, including his fascinating book on 19th century uh, historical melancholy, Stranded in the Present Modern Time and the Melancholy of History, which was published by Harvard in 2004. Another book that has influenced me personally very deeply is his vivid analysis of the reading public in Berlin, Reading Berlin 1900, published with Harvard in 1996, and Nation of Flyers, German Aviation and the Popular Imagination, Harvard 1992. His work has been translated into several languages, and I'm delighted to say that uh, Peter is no stranger to the Humanities Institute, which he has visited on, as far as I can remember, three previous occasions as a contributor to conferences on diverse aspects of German history and memory. 
So, Peter, we are delighted that you are here today. We're really looking forward to your uh, lecture on truth and history. I'm so delighted to see you here because not, not many people would come and see me on such a beautiful day. I read in the newspaper today, this is like, yesterday was like the best day uh, in Ireland's weather. So uh, thank you very much. I'm uh, going to turn around truth a little bit and, and be talking about the myth-making uh, features that I think are intrinsic uh, to history. And I'm going to start off with about uh, two or three minutes of sort of um, propositions, um, more abstract propositions, but then I have um, more blood and uh, bones and meat uh, in the, uh, the rest of the talk. So the propositions I want to talk about before developing at little greater length two stories um, are about how I see history reproducing itself. Um, history, one, one, history uh, depends on the recognition that something new or different has happened, that fortune has been arrested by misfortune. And it depends also on the confidence that this newness, this difference, can somehow be managed in a story through a narrative um, that produces knowledge and meaning. Two, history is therefore a narrative, uh, a storyline, a plot that dramatizes elements, protagonists, and resolutions in various ways through background, foreground, agency, motive, and self-knowledge. Three, uh, this narrative is bounded in time and space in order to distinguish the particularities of the misfortune or the newness that has occurred. So I think that history creates collective meanings, uh, but not necessarily universal ones. For histories are truthful to the extent that the narrative is commensurate with the socially poignant and socially pertinent feelings or experiences that people have had. It has to be commensurate to what people have experienced. And histories lose their value if they flatten out experience in such a way that different kinds of people, different kinds of classes, no longer recognize themselves in the narrative. And history also loses value, I think, if, if the histories are so capacious uh, that they inhibit collective action at a local level. In the end, I think, five, history, uh, and here I'm actually echoing Marina Warner, uh, history is a means to create active subjects in the world. It is how we as a we inhabit the world. And these active subjects, uh, they've often been nation states uh, or ethnic groups, but they don't have to be. They could be classes or other collective groupings. But history creates this active subject. Six, the events that history gives meaning to are generally rendered through descriptions of particular provenance. You talk about this time, this place, uh, and you elucidate this through the percussive force of the event through society, where some actors are more and some are less affected. History is all about dramatization, and it employs then techniques such as um, citation, suspense, surprise, juxtaposition, contrast, causation, 
in order to heighten the dramatic effect of giving the new or the different or the misfortune uh, sufficient um, power, but then assimilating it into a general narrative. So history requires that events as such are recognized uh, and are seen as new rather than repetitions. And it requires that there's a readership that understands this logic. Um, it privileges a variety of social, particular precise social locales and social actors to bring the sense of fullness to these events. Uh, and so history is a way of describing the world is something that I think is rooted at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. I don't want to say history has been invented in the modern times, but what we think of as history, with its uh, emphasis on the event and on newness and on a readership that understands that, is um, not much more than 200 years old. History can ring very false when these attributes of difference are covered up. But by creating collective meanings, by creating a narrative, history always covers up through all sorts of exclusions, excisions, extravagant oppositions. History can move deeply into myth uh, and create hard narratives. Uh, but history can also create mutual reconciliation and recognition uh, precisely because it assimilates difference, these people, this place, in that way, so well. History can move into fascist directions by creating a belligerent and beleaguered subject, but it can move into more populist or vernacular modes by creating new styles of representing difference, by incorporating and um, uh, incorporating uh, different kinds of actors and different kinds of people. It can fashion relatively sticky narratives or ones that are much more elastic and open up to revision. In all of this, uh, there is a lot of poetry and art, and that's what narrative requires. The events themselves do not scream out the truth. The events find their truth value in artful, constructed, and plotted narratives. These propositions seem to apply even in the extreme case of the Holocaust. Uh, the facts of the Holocaust could have been represented, indeed were, organized in a preliminary way as a commemorative history written by the Nazis. The difficulties of representing the suffering of victims in the Holocaust also does not cancel out the obligation of narrative. Um, and you can mark the problems of creating meaning in the Holocaust through narrative. And in fact, if one listens to the victims, they wanted more than nothing else than that their stories be told and listened to. There was a longing for form, a longing for inclusion in narrative. So I don't think the Holocaust is an example of the insufficiency of narrative um, necessarily. But perhaps we'll discuss the Holocaust uh, in the discussion. But I want to not talk about the Holocaust today, uh, but take two more, rather more conventional journeys in order to elucidate how history reproduces itself and how it creates a, a, a kind of a mythic logic. And so I'm going to take two journeys, one undertaken in the 1930s and one undertaken in the 1980s. In the first, in one of the most dramatic, 
dramatic moments in 20th century history, Rebecca West tumbled into an enchanted world of passionate and collective life. Lying in a London hospital in October 1934, she is making a slow recovery. West is terribly bored, and so she fiddles with the knobs on the radio beside her bed. After I had listened to some talks and variety programs, I would not have been surprised, she writes, to learn that there are householders who make arrangements with the local authorities not to empty their dustbins, but to fill them. So listening to the contemporary hits on the radio was like collecting trash. Quite by accident one night, though, uh, she turned the wrong knob and came across strange sounds. And all at once, West heard music that lives in the thunderclouds and rolls in human ears. With the accidental turn of the radio knob, West left one world and discovered another. She happily abandoned her variety shows and her householders and dustbins. In other words, the popular culture of the West, which she regarded as superficial and without a sense of history or purpose. Accompanied by martial music marking the assassination of the king, who is later identified as King Alexander of Yugoslavia, she entered a different familiar, uh, she entered a different, totally unfamiliar place, uh, which she encountered as a dramatic geography. And that is uh, the history of Serbia, its heroism, its collective feeling. In West's account, listening to the martial music of the funeral of King Alexander, the Yugoslav kingdom is the antithesis of the West. It is commemorative instead of distracted and forgetful. It is rooted in history and custom instead of being fashionable and entertaining like the radio. It is heroic rather than fearful, sacrificial rather than complacent. After discovering the radio station, uh, Rebecca West took two trips to Yugoslavia in order to follow a historical itinerary that had been forsaken by the indifferent developments in the West. I had come to Yugoslavia because I knew that the past had made the present, she reported in 1940, and I wanted to see how the process works. Yugoslavia, this enchanted place, still possessed the batteries to collective life. And her journey culminated on the Kosovo plains, where the Serbian defeat at the hands of the Turks in 1389 had become the founding myth of Serbia. These pages at the beginning of Black Lamb and Grey Falcon are remarkable for the way they rehearse the longings of Europeans in the years after World War I. First, West maps out two very different versions of, of the contemporary. She contrasts the disenchanted routines of civilization with the enchanted possibilities of community, the ahistorical surface of Britain and the historical depth of Serbia. Second, she links the two locations, which are separated along a vertical axis, by the most tenuous means, simply the operation of the knob on the radio. The two worlds that West has discovered can't really be mapped onto each other. The one cannot be seen from the vantage of the other. 
and travel between the two places depends on the surprise of the accidental turning of the radio knob. Yet, three, the evidence of surprise and disjuncture is the premise of West's insistent exercise in, in, in discovering these two contemporary places, the pessimistic diagnosis of the present, the modeling of other futures, the search for the treasures a different place might offer. And four, these histories are telling because they indict the winners of the World War, and they celebrate the virtues of, in Serbia's case, struggle, defeat, and death. Yugoslavia, or rather Serbia, is not only the trembling front line of Christianity in a way that safeguards it from the complacency of triumph, which permeates Western Europe, but for that reason it stands as the only genuine opponent to Nazi Germany, which for all its malevolence marks out a similarly enchanted terrain of myth. Rebecca West is convinced that in Yugoslavia she has stumbled upon treasure, the self-conscious practice of collective existence. Now, she knows very well that the myth of Serbia of the Serbian nation is dangerous. It constantly monitors both internal enemies, such as the more complacent Croats, and external enemies, such as the Turks. The nation is threatened with the violence that she feels on the plains of Kosovo, the violence of defeat, which is at the point of the nation's origin. Uh, But West also knows that the myth is strong, of Serbian nationalism strong enough, possibly, to save Europe from itself. That's, that's her story uh, in her travelogue. The second journey that I want to discuss was undertaken in 1984 to Tanzania by the Harvard-trained anthropologist Lisa Malki, who wanted to undertake research on Hutu refugees who had fled Tutsi violence in Burundi in the early 1970s. So unlike Rwanda, which is violence of the Hutis onto the Tutsis, uh, this is 20 years earlier, uh, uh, Tutsi violence against the Hutis in Burundi, um, bringing the uh, Hutus then to uh, refugee uh, camps and towns in Tanzania. Malki, uh, the anthropologist, was at first interested in Foucauldian techniques of power in enclosed institutional settings like prisons or camps. Her working assumption viewed that ethnic identity was a product of uh, the way uh, UN refugee administrators or sympathetic journalists and others uh, approached uh, the refugees. Uh, enforcing tight absolutist identities um, that Malki then um, believed were responsible for ethnic genocide. Uh, Malki's method was comparative and included fieldwork in a Hutu refugee camp in the Tanzanian forest and among Hutu exiles in a bustling Tanzanian town. So this is important. I'm going to talk about the camp in the forest and the town both of whom have Hutu refugees. She expected to find evidence of the constructed nature of ethnic identity, which flourished in the projections of discourse, 
yet which were probably, in her view, dispersed in the everyday environment of lived life. In other words, for Malky, life was far more complicated and evasive than the categories deployed uh, to manipulate and describe life. Well, she certainly found the dispersed identities in the town. Uh, Hutu refugees there uh, worked hard to eliminate, uh, to assimilate, uh, to learn Swahili, to procure Tanzanian identity cards, and to receive Tanzanian government benefits. In town, in the midst of business deals, they hardly talked about the murderous past. Uh, they intermarried frequently and saw themselves in state terms as Tanzanian or Burundi citizens, but not in ethnic terms uh, as Hutu, since what they were interested in the t- in the town uh, was the social and economic advantages of citizenship, uh, but not the moral authority of ethnic identity. But when Malki went to the camp, about 200 kilometers from the town, she found something completely different, an extravagant self-consciousness about being Hutu. The camp occupied a space that had been cleared in the forest, a dark, dense, towering mass which surrounded the perimeter. Hidden from view, it was accessible only by one small dirt road, and it was a somewhat terrifying place. Malki was also unsettled by her informants, hundreds of people who spoke as if with one voice, which recollected an obsessive, violent history of the subordination and suffering of the Hutu people, and outlined a redemptive future in a purified Hutu nation. It was, as she puts it, history as myth, a myth of the origins of the Hutu world in which to enforce the purity of the Hutu and identify the complete illegitimacy and vice of the Tutsi. Malki was astonished at the monologic nature of the embroidered Hutu history in the camp, the degree to which individuals um, provided the same story, and the way in which the myth had created a powerful collective subject, the Hutu, into which individual identities had submerged themselves. In contrast to the dispersed identities of the Hutu refugees in the town, she recognized the collective identity of Hutu refugees in the camp, which she found meaningful and politically powerful. In the micro, in the mythical history, it was the exiled natives, the refugees, who had a kind of knowledge to empower them to achieve the transformation of Burundi into a true nation. Now, Malki would have probably preferred to live in the town, uh, but she was awed by the myth cultivated in the camp. And I think she's drawn to the forest, just like Rebecca West uh, returns to Yugoslavia. Both are fabulous places that neither traveler had really imagined before. Indeed, Malki is surprised that her anthropological methods uh, cannot unpack the collective subjectivity of the Hutu in the camp. In the end, so uh, Malki's project (coughs) shifted from one examining how micro power 
uh, constituted the refugee in Foucauldian terms, uh, to one that analyzed the refugee's own production of fierce collective narratives in cultural terms. Both the Serbian and the Hutu myths are national historiographies which distinguish themselves in the enormous effort they undertake to identify the national subject as an aggrieved collective victim who must fastidiously ward off the impurification that will contaminate and weaken the collective whole and which must energetically keep in focus the internal and external enemies, the Croats, the Turks, the Tutsis. The dramatization of danger as an active and lethal threat reproduces the redemptive energy of the national myth and makes it possible to convert this energy into violence. West is impressed with the warrior culture of the Serbs, but frightened by its readiness to destroy the enemy. And Mulkey credits the obsessive Hutu national myth in the camp with, the, uh, with keeping the knowledge of the genocide intact, even as she uh, is alarmed at the frenzy of purification that this myth demands and the threat of renewed violence uh, it constantly conjures up. Now, the Serbs and the Hutus are extreme examples, perhaps, but I would argue that the relationship between victimhood and violence is embedded in most national histories. The national narrative is primarily exhortative. It demands, urges, appeals. Although the nation is often described as possessing an account of itself that um, seems to create a sense of permanence and naturalness, um, this, what we call reification, uh, is really not without considerable effort. The nation is more plausibly, in my view, seen as a collective entity that is repeatedly evoked in terms of the perils and dangers it faces, the catastrophes it has endured, the forgetfulness its people threaten themselves with. Put another way, the new national home of the 19th century always had something unsettled about it. It recalled the contingency of its claims, the strain of recovering its historical origins, the historicity of its very premise. Hopeful, exhortative, suspicious, all at once, the national idea expressed itself repeatedly in the conditional tense. Its being, the nation, its being is first conjured up as a being under threat. And it is this state of alarm that produces the energy required to override competing local uh, identities, often violently. Violence is inscribed in the national narrative of the nation uh, because the nation imagines itself first and foremost as a collective entity that is incomplete and imperiled. In many ways, the nation, the national narrative, must sustain itself by reproducing its own state of jeopardy, its own state of war. 
As a result, national histories tremble. Insofar as national history reproduces itself by defining its object as a besieged, incomplete entity, it gestures at the conditions uh, by which this siege could be lifted and unity completed, uh, and thereby continuously um, creates a state of battle readiness to complete the nation. The conditional case of the nation is the premise for the redemptive violence um, that it threatens on its own behalf. And this anticipated violence of completing the nation and protecting itself is in fact a concession to the, to the idea that the nation is partial, constructed, tentative, not natural. Embedded in the very logic of national history is the contingent or historical or unnecessary, unnatural um, nature of the nation's origins. It is not the naturalness of the nation or the unanimity of its parts, but its own unsettled state, uh, which uh, produces history and prepares the wars. In the most extreme case, fascism in the, in the last century dramatized the potential of new beginnings and abrupt endings in order to make claims on the individual on behalf of the collective. It saw contemporary history as a matter of life and death, in which the authoritarian renovation of national life uh, not only could ward off the imminence of national death, but required such extreme vigilance that the death and sacrifice of others was accepted and even uh, required to guarantee national life. Fascism territorialized morality so that what sustained the collective endeavor, what sustained Germany, was good, and what undermined Germany was evil. It is on account of the redemptive and violent effects uh, that we are very suspicious of national histories. Uh, the, the logic of violence and redemption and victimhood inside these histories makes us um, suspicious. The extravagant fantasies of victimhood deployed uh, across the 20th century, whether we're talking about Versailles or 1918 uh, or Caporetto, all need to stay in view. Yet the idea of the victim at the heart of national history uh, produces other ways, other kinds of knowledge uh, that we need to recognize as well. And so I want to explore just a little bit more closely what Rebecca West and Lisa Mulkey uh, discovered in Serbia and Tanzania. Embedded at the core of Serb or Hutu historiography is the destruction of the nation. National narratives rely on the figure of the victim in order to reveal the unnatural, unnecessary category of untimeliness and untimely death. It proposes the idea of untimely death, which constitutes the victim, whose fate is not explained by nature, but by history. By imagining the destruction of, say, the nation, National histories reconstitute the historical record as a sequence of dramatic, extravagant events 
in which wars and revolutions have created abrupt endings and untimely deaths. They undo the idea that it goes without saying. They try to explain outcomes without assuming their inevitability. So it's rooted in history and not in divine justice or um, progress or inevitability. And in this way, there is an elective affinity uh, between the historical method, contingency, untimeliness, non-natural outcomes, and the national collective, which gathers strength by representing its own jeopardy. In the case of the mythic history of the Hutu, Malki explains national consciousness, consciousness created an account that took the exalted position of the Tutsi enemy in Burundi and represented it as something not founded uh, in nature or, or through divine premises, but on deception and ill-gotten power. The Hutu history denaturalizes and makes strange or untimely the hierarchical outcome of Tutsi power. And it does so through means of scrupulous historization by describing this event, this act of aggression, here, 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 against the Hutu. So it names names and provides dates. One of the reasons why national narratives are so attached to the site of the ruin is because the ruin expresses so well the idea of untimely, unnecessary destruction. But the ruin itself has to be explained. Why did it become a ruin? Through the careful reconstruction of its unnatural demise, which requires an event-based, dramatic, always contingent account, history of the operations of power. National histories must reorder developmental schemes of center and periphery. They must reorder temporal lineages of obsolescence, suppression, and inevitability in order to make the claim for the potential of alternative subjects, such as the defeated nation uh, with its untimely dead. Uh, National histories historicize disaster in the past in order to reinsert possibilities uh, in the future. They must elaborate circumstantial, provisional, interpretive history, which resists such supernatural ideas as uh, centrality or obsolescence or nature. Historization of the national case of Hutu, Serb, is fundamentally denaturalizing. The historical argument to make the case that war and revolution created untimely deaths and and untimely victims needs to make a case, and that case study is based on particulars and provenience, this place here, that place there, that event here. Particularity and extravagance in description fuel the historical national drama. And the dramatization of historical loss and political jeopardy reanimates the ruin that now speaks through history against the silence of nature or the inevitability of divine judgment. And that is why the discovery of ruins, the archaeological investigation of their particulars, um, 
across a suddenly crumpled landscape accompanied the um, uh, creation of national uh, state uh, histories in the 19th century. Provenience, measuring, dating, uh, the method of particulars, had the additional consequence of making the particulars of cultural custom and domestic tradition and household interiors, that's what archaeologists do, they look at how, how people lived, lives just as they were here and there as opposed to classical templates. Um, the signifiers of the specifics of the historical case, say of Serbia or of Hutu. As James Chandler uh, argues in his terrific book, England in 1819, it was at the convivial table and around the domestic hearth that the historical became legible. The vernacular, customs, food, diet, house architecture, the vernacular became a register of difference denoting other ways of being and representing the essence of things like Serbianness and Hutuness. And a good example of how um, national and domestic spaces and national identity and household memorialization corresponded with one another is the American example of New England, uh, whose distinctive Cape homes, farmhouse antiques, spinning wheels, cooking pots, and particularly the Thanksgiving dinner tradition, served as components of a new American vernacular. But in Europe, also the rural, the homespun, the old-fashioned, came to be recognized as the marker of national identity, a trend which invited a democratization of the national form. So I've been talking about the violence of the nation-state, the logic of victimhood and violence and memory and redemption. But because of the particulars of memory, there's a democratizing effect as well. Uh, the democratization of the national form, because it idolized the common people, whose lifeways were the marker of national difference, um, the vessel, indeed, of the national form, like Thanksgiving in the U.S., now, this vernacular could be politically stifling, certainly, and culturally oppressive. National na narratives tended to embrace the purity of the rural and the rustic in order to ward off the contaminating influence of the hybrid, the intermarried, the mongrel condition of the cities, as Malky discovered in the camp in Tanzania, which had contempt uh, for the um, degraded, if more prosperous, condition of Hutu refugees in the town. Eastern European historiographies also, between the wars, um, elaborated the peasant fundamentals of, of Romania or Hungary and discovered the cosmopolitan contaminant in the figure of the Jew or the stranger. So these are good examples of how the vernacular could veer toward... Um, both a literary and political enfranchisement of the common people and a hermeneutics of suspicion against strangers. And this production of outsiders, the stranger, prepares, I think, does the incipient racialization of the national body, which uh, was facilitated precisely because one names and dates 
the point of origin of the national body. Um, national specificity, just as they were, just as we are, the longing for national form, cuts then both ways, creating alternative, often anti-imperial subjectivities in the newly revealed vicissitudes of history. It creates democratic forms by enfranchising the common people and the rustic, but it also exposes separate origins against, defined against extraneous alien matter. The nation is complicit in these histories of autonomy, inclusion, and exclusion. National histories also make private misfortunes more legible and therefore work to preserve in social rituals individual memories of loss. History, and especially national histories, make socially poignant what would otherwise be forgotten as a personal tragedy. It establishes the difference between the untimely death of a soldier and the untimely death of a drunken teenage driver. Malky describes the gathering in the early 1970s of more and more refugees on the Tanzanian-Burundi border. The groups of extended families had fled from their separate hills, which had defined Burundi's widely scattered, widely scattered rural farming communities. Each hill community had lived separately in Burundi and then had been attacked and its villagers killed or driven out. But until the survivors understood on the border that the experiences they had endured on the hill were in fact shared by thousands of others, before then there was only the vaguest sense of being Hutu, or for that matter, Tutsi. The national tragedy on the border reconfigured the previous lives on the hills and made the isolated deaths socially uh, significant and meaningful and telling and representative and representable. The national narrative recognized each of the hills' stories as exemplary of a new national story, which gave social poignancy to separate experiences that would otherwise not have found a shared historical container. It is the standardization of the national narrative which creates the recognition of loss so that strangers, the hill people, could recognize each other as nationals. In this way, national history lifts individual misfortunes and afflictions and explains them through comprehensive afflictions and general processes uh, in order to create a shared uh, collective story. It produces poignancy and recognition among strangers through a standard narrative. It produces the poignant out of the parochial allowing people to see themselves as contemporaries, to recognize each other as fellow victims, and to emphasize, empathize with one another's now national sentimental narratives. So these, this empathy made intimates out of strangers, made Hutus out of hill people, um, who would accept sacrifices on each other's behalf. Um, National histories create contemporaries bounded in time and space. We're strangers to one another, but we recognize an affinity. 
and we're willing to tax each other and be taxed um, and to um, pay for social welfare and to be conscripted into the army. Without the common story of the nation, strangers would be less apt to recognize each other as deserving or take interest in each other's lives as contemporaries. In the end, it was the myth of the nation that created bounded intimacies among ordinary people and franchised these ordinary people as national exemplars and facilitated the exchange of emotional empathy and social solidarity across widely scattered distances, which is really a remarkable uh, development. That's what the nation-state did, and that's what national histories do, bounded as they are in time uh, and space. They're not universal, uh, but, they, but they bring together a translocal collectivity. The national narrative also has the ability to judge and indict in moral terms and to preserve memory of untimely death. In the towns, the people, the Hutu refugees, were not so concerned, didn't talk about the genocide so much, and were not so concerned about redemption or revenge. But that collective myth story in the camp was extremely strong, preserved the memory of victimhood, and uh, elaborated uh, the itinerary of possible um, revenge. But in any case, genocide remained a memory in the camp, whereas the memory of genocide was much more dispersed uh, in the town. This memory of suffering and possible revenge is another component of uh, national history. And so the what happens to justice and injustice without a national history? Are transnational histories adequate to remember? No, sometimes you shouldn't always remember, but if you are going to remember, are transnational histories adequate to this memory, or does one need uh, the nation state? To what extent is the nation state complicit in many things, but also complicit in the call for justice and in the acceptance? of responsibility. In this age of contested and hybrid identities, a messiness, which we all like and prize, um, are we too quick to dismantle the nation in the name of the violence it threatens? It does. And the alternative identities it submerges? It does. But are we willing to give up the role of the nation-state as an arbiter of uh, memory uh, and um, justice? And the national narrative is not necessarily uh, um, all-encompassing or completely stifling. Um, it can imagine other subjectivities on different scales, like other nations, um, other empires, which, um, and nations which might be friends or allies. Um, and the scrupulous historization by which national histories produce their own cultural autonomy uh, and resists natural or divine judgment is able to uncover new versions of the vernacular, maybe more democratic versions of the vernacular, um, more or less open to variation. The appeal to America and American history fortified, well, fortifies Trump, but also fortified the New Deal, uh, helps legitimize um, health care reform, just as it legitimates cultural anxiety, discrimination, and injustice. And while national narratives are impressive um, in the way um, 
they create standardization, this single voice in the Hutu camp. Uh, they persistently leak. These narratives leak because no narrative is completely true to lived experience. The widow, the maimed veteran, and other, uh, and other survivors testify to the divergent meanings of being a national. Provenience in history allows for fluidity, even if it does establish sovereign points of origin. In other words, the boundedness of the bounded subject creates violence, yes, but it also remembers violence and untimely death. The boundedness of the bounded subject holds protagonists responsible by naming names. It legitimates suspicion, but also solidarity. In any case, it enables political action in a fundamentally socially efficacious way. I come to my conclusion. I give you a final scene from Rebecca West's fantastic uh, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. On her visit to Sarajevo, and this is just before the start of the Second World War, West encounters a graveyard, and not far from the cemetery gate, she saw a new grave, a raw wound in the grass. It is some sort of military skirmish, and an officer, a young officer, stands on the side of this grave. He rocked backwards in his grief, though very slightly, she observes, and all at once he tore open his skirted coat as if he were about to strip. But just as quickly, his hands did up the buttons. In this brief gesture, the mourner avoided giving way to private grief. West recognized here the discipline of the soldier who understood and accepted loss in the name of the nation. His hands did up the buttons, although they were tempted to cast off the uniform. This was a Slav. This was what it was like to be a Slav, West concluded. He knew, that only, he knew only that in suffering or rejoicing, he must not lose that control of the body which enabled him to defend himself and his people. There is no mistaking the enormous pain of the individual at the graveside, who then on second thought also accepts the demands of the nation and the redemptive commemoration the nation offers the dead. The officer chooses to see the raw wound as a site of national memory. This recognition is not imperative. We know the soldier wavered. We know he rocked backwards in grief. But this recognition is compelling because it gives collective meaning to individual suffering and restores discipline and control. West is totally in control of the scene, of course, uh, but she sets it to reveal how national history is made at the side of the grave and how grave sites replenish national history. In the face of loss, the soldiers stepped back from the new grave to embrace the epic of the nation. But he did waver, and he could have stripped off his uniform, and he could have entered a less fearsome, less judgmental, more easygoing world, embraced perhaps by Malki's town, which is not cast in terms of the cry of liberty or death, which echoes in the camp. There is movement in both directions here, toward the grave or back into town, and each movement enables and each disables. The town 
shrugs off many facts in ways that would frustrate the truth seeker about the genocide in Burundi. But the camp makes extravagant claims that cripple an accurate or truthful account because it absolutizes collective identities. Each place creates a highly distorting account of tragic events, one prizing ignorance, the other high drama. And both places reveal, both places reveal, both forgetting and remembering uh, are themselves fundamentally false. But they're also truthful in terms of the meaning of experience. And they're truthful in the ability to act in the world. So it, through these examples, which are not complete, but perhaps telling, credible historical narratives are powerful precisely because uh, they create their own truths. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Truth To Be Told podcast. For more information on Truth To Be Told, and to listen to previous lectures in this series, please go to the UCD Humanities Institute's website.